Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Twenty-seventh day of the month. Yeah. I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio. Welcome. Yeah. Gonna be gonna be November. Oh my god. Yeah. So uh you got that going for you. Um there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff in the news today. Not normally where I find my news, but uh, news stories that I notice, right, as I peruse the news. So um, we're going to check that. Chris Woodbridge is going to join us. <clears throat> we'll talk to Woody. Something we recorded earlier. And uh, Woody, a um, little bit under the weather. But he manned up. Love that. And um, did another installment to the fifth installment of uh, post-traumatic winning. Um, seminar last night. And that's, again, it's amazing. <laughs> Honestly, it's absolutely amazing. So I've got to find a way to get this to a bigger audience. 
because of the impact. Uh, when I get done with them, I sit there and I, I think about the things people say and and uh, just uh, it's a pretty good feeling to go to bed at night knowing that you helped somebody. But uh, so anyway, uh, I was we started that last night. Uh, if if you know somebody, um, if you know somebody that is uh, looking to uh, needs help, uh, I'll, I take people into the second week. Uh, so um, don't be afraid to reach out if uh, if you know somebody that could could use some help. Anyway, um, yeah. So let me uh, let me start the program, and then uh, there's a bunch of news I want to get to. So, without further ado, the United States Marine Corps Band makes this morning official. Good morning to you. This is dedicated to an NBA basketball player. <clears throat> yeah, I've never done this before. Okay. But <clears throat> this is, um, we talked about um, China and the NBA and how, you know, companies like Nike um, all across the United States put up their social commentary, right? Colin Kaepernick in particular might be the biggest hypocrite of all, right, with a gigantic billboard, right? Stand for something or stand for nothing, right? Take a stand, right? No, no, stand for something even if it costs you everything. Yet when the stuff went on in Hong Kong, the Uyghur stuff in terms of slave labor, Muslims being indoctrinated. Nobody from the NBA who has the biggest footprint of any American sport in China says shit. And the one guy who said something was the general manager of the Houston Rockets, I think they're known as. I'm not sure anymore. But, I mean, he was excoriated, right? Nobody said shit. Why? Because you're messing with our money doesn't matter if people are being enslaved. It doesn't matter if people are being thrown in prison unjustly. Wait a minute. Isn't that like a social media cause? Isn't that the history of, of black men and women in this country? But nobody said shit about China, right? Until Enos Cantor did. Place for the Boston Celtics. 
right? In recent days, taking advantage of his celebrity status, talking about Tibet, talking about the Uyghurs. And then he wore shoes on Sunday that said Free China. And I think it was written in red that looked like blood. Tweeting this, right? Dear at Nike, stop modern day slavery now. Hashtag hypocrite Nike. Hashtag end Uyghur forced labor. Now, Nike, being the hypocrites they are, they're not going to take that shit laying down, right? So yesterday afternoon, they opened a new front in their campaign targeting prominent U.S. enabler of China's mass atrocities, right? So anyway, Nike has not, they're no stranger to this, right? So anyway, um, Nike pushed back yesterday saying we talked, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, I just want, you know, again, um, when this issue came up, what, a year or two ago? You're just sitting there watching it and saying, is nobody going to say anything? And you know what the answer was? That's exactly what's going to happen. And the NBA is not going to say anything because don't mess with my money. So this is dedicated to Enos Cantor, right? Who had the courage to stand up and tell the truth. God bless you, man. God bless you. betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well <clears throat> i'm very confident that thank you very much <clears throat> if this was vodka it'd be a lot better speech <clears throat> <clears throat> But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. 
and we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't. We don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago: persevere against difficult, challenging conditions and odds, and win. We got to win. You know, the maddest thing, seriously, is funny every time. Yeah, there's not a day that goes by. And normally, I'm doing something else, like I'll be reading something when I hear it, and it makes me laugh all the time. Because it's him fucking with that guy. Oh, what keeps you awake at night? Come on, man. I'm not... Right? So anyway, uh, we'll check the weather right now. Then we'll check some news headlines. Um, currently, in Quantico, it is cloudy and 56. Down the coast at Marine Corps Air Station, Cherry Point, home of the world-famous 2nd Marine Air Wing, my favorites. Right? Sunny and 48. Yikes. Now, this is a couple hours earlier than I normally do it. So, anyway. It is dark and 53. Yeah, it's like 5.42 in the morning here locally while I'm recording this. You'll hear it in about 2 hours and 18 minutes. Uh, So, clear, dark, and 53 in 29 Palms right now. Camp Pendleton, clear, dark, and 57. Camp Smith in Hawaii, dark, cloudy, and 71. Okinawa, clear, dark, and 71. Yeah, Okinawa, clear skies. Doesn't happen very often. Um, In Manila, it is dark, cloudy, and 83. And in Darwin, which is in the northern part of Australia, it is dark, cloudy, and 84. At the home of All Marine Radio, it is clear and 51 degrees. Brr. Yeah. But it's supposed to warm up throughout the rest of the week. Looking for a high of 78 today. How about that? 84 tomorrow, 77 on Friday, Saturday, 70, and Sunday, 68. Take that. Hmm? Yeah. So uh, that is a look at your weather. Now, let me get to the news that, 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 uh, well, first of all, let me get, let me finish the story about Linus Cantor. Anyway, um, this was one of those cases where you're like, are you going to believe me or your lion eyes? And so you saw, you know, the NBA as they were doing a tour and the subject came up and the thing's going crazy in Hong Kong, right? And nobody says shit, right? They won't send their guys to press conferences while they're in China. And it's just, and it's like, is nobody going to say anything? Right, And then, as I said, you see Nike, who every time something happens here in the United States, they are all about it, right? Social media, social justice, equity, blah, 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 blah. But with something that might impact their business model, oh, whoa, stay away from my money, right? Don't touch the man's money. So, uh... 
Let me see if I can make this work. Yeah, it's always a good question whether it does or not. Let's see if we can get Enos Cantor to... to See if we can get him to speak here. We cannot. Let me uh, let me check something real quick. This is called on-air producing. I think you know if you listen to the program. I'm not afraid to do this. So why is Enos Cantor not speaking out loud to me? Oh, I know why. Stand by. Here you go. Dear Nike, your company says that you are making a positive impact in our communities. And that is true. Yes, you are. Here in the United States, Nike stands with the Black Lives Matter. Nike stands with Stop Asian Hate. Nike stands with the Latino community. And Nike stands with the LGBTQ community. And Nike remains vocal about injustice here in America. But when it comes to China, Nike remains silent. You do not address police brutality in China. You do not speak about discrimination against the LGBTQ community. You do not say a word about the oppression of minorities in China. You are scared to speak up. Who makes your shoes in China? Do you even know? There are so many forced labor factories in China. For instance, Uyghur forced labor in modern day slavery, and it is happening right now in China. Millions of Uyghurs are currently detained, sold, and assigned to work at forced labor camps, prisons, and factories across the country. They are, un they are under constant surveillance with long working hours and poor living conditions. They are subject to political re-education. They have no freedom of expression, no freedom of religion, and they are not even able to leave. Did you know that almost the entire apparel and footwear industry is tainted by Uyghur, Uyghur forced labor? Many well-known global brands are implicated. And yes, that includes the one of the NBA's biggest sponsors, Nike. Nike claims that they do not allow any forced labor in their supply chains. Yet, they don't have the receipt to prove it. They have not publicly committed to cutting ties with the Chinese government's labor transfer regime. They have not provided clear timelines or updates about their efforts to end this. They have not publicly committed to the steps outlined by the coalition to end Uyghur forced labor. Don't forget, every time you put those shoes on your feet or you put that t-shirt on your back, there are so many tears and so much oppression and so much blood behind it all. Nike likes to say, just do it. Well, what are you doing about the slave labor that makes your shoes? That slave labor that makes you rich? To the owner of Nike, Feel night, I have a message for you. How about I book a plane tickets for us? Let's fly, let's fly to China together. We can try to visit these slave labor camps 
and you can see it with your own eyes. LeBron James and Michael Jordan. You guys are welcome to come too. Nike must be a participant in this. Stop with hypocrisy. Stop the modern day slavery now. Yeah, wow. You know what that was? That was just one guy who plays in the NBA who finally decided that, you know what? Maybe I should tell the truth about all this. Amazing. Amazing. So, again, we'll see what else comes out of it. But, you know, again, uh, congratulations to him. And... You know, it's uh, at the end, calling out Michael Jordan and calling out LeBron James, absolutely appropriate, right? And, you know, in this woke nation that we live in, and, you know, the guy who should be called out, who, who he didn't call out, was Colin Kaepernick. He is the face of social justice for Nike. Stand for something, even if it costs you everything, Unless it impacts your wallet. That's what that shit should say. So, uh, interesting little story right there. Um, next story. It's from USA Today. I don't normally go there. How do I sign in? I... Click on the sign-in button, maybe. Headline, China's definitely on the rise, but don't write off American dominance just yet. China's growing strength is still something the United States can withstand. If we panic, we will turn a manageable crisis into a frightening one. Written by Michael O'Hanlon. Now, you know Michael O'Hanlon from Brookings. China's definitely on the rise. But don't write off American dominance just yet. Even if the trade wars between the United States and China that dominated the Trump era have receded slightly, many other issues have intensified. China tested a hypersonic, global, potentially global-spanning weapon this summer. It, conducts, it conducted dozens of sorties by combat aircraft that touched on Taiwan's air defense identification zone and otherwise menaced an island of 23.5 million people which is home to much of the world's semiconductor production capacity that it now claims as its own. The Pentagon's artificial intelligence guru, Nicholas Chalian, recently resigned with the warning that the United States is losing the AI race to China. Intelligence and military officials warn that China may be expanding its nuclear arsenal by up to several hundred warheads, and commanders of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command in Hawaii have estimated that China might well attempt attempt to take Taiwan within a half dozen years or so, given its military modernization trends. We should not overreact to these troubling trends. They are serious. They are, however, far from truly foreboding. China is flexing its muscles more than preparing for war. It is not the equivalent of Europe in the late 30s, given how much China depends on a stable international order for its continued success. 
we do need to stay vigilant. Remember the art of war, even in this age of relative to peace, of relative peace, and expand our economic as well as our military toolkit for crisis management. We need not and must not panic. However, because doing so could turn a manageable crisis into a truly scary one. Um, and I'll give you, I'll give you a couple paragraphs, and then I'll get to his conclusion. Uh, the next major section that he writes, and you know, O'Hanlon, he's a big time guy, right? Next section is China won't take the risk. First, let's remember America's strengths are many. Our military budget is about three times China's. Our allies in Europe and East Asia together outspend China themselves, even if not all would fight a war in the Pacific, admittedly. The loose coalition of European nations and the USA also represents a consumer market for more than a billion comparatively wealthy individuals whom China needs in order to sustain its still export-driven economy. That means that we have many tools of economic as well as military warfare if needed. So that's the next section. The next section after that is America's options against China. Beyond these broad advantages are a number of specific factors working in our favor to direct China's rise in a generally peaceful direction. Here's the first one. Even if our AI efforts as the Pentagon and elsewhere could be better focused, we enjoy numerous advantages in high technology vis-a-vis China, including in stealth submarine technology, long-range strike platforms like aircraft carriers, even if China's military is bigger than ours in some ways, total troop count, total ship rise. To be sure, the United States needs to stay vigilant and to keep getting stronger ourselves, as Brookings Institute scholar Ryan Haas argues in a new book of that very title. Our military command and control must be more resilient in order to make sure our, quote, kill chain, unquote, is robust. Our armed forces need more long-range strike platforms, including more bombers and long-range unmanned systems operating off aircraft carriers and attack submarines, given China's ability to threaten nearby U.S. bases. Nations need to diversify and harden their economies and the global supply chain that undergirds them so that China does not have the upper hand in any future economic warfare scenario. Final paragraph, managing China's rise is going to be a challenge for America and her allies for a generation. But if we stay calm in this crisis, make ourselves stronger and more resilient militarily and economically, we should have the tools needed to sustain the peace. So I thought that was interesting perspective from Michael O'Hanlon, so I thought I'd share it with you. Um, Next, headline, Pentagon confirms nearly 450 Americans trapped in Afghanistan. Now, the State Department said the number was less than 200. The truth is, there's no single best running shoe because everyone is different. Why is that happening to me? Um, Last week, the State Department said there was less than 200, probably close to 100. Pentagon Yesterday said the number was close to 450. Actually said it, yeah. The Pentagon stated Tuesday that nearly 450 American citizens are still in Afghanistan following August U.S. military withdrawal, more than the Biden administration has previously claimed. The latest tally came from Undersecretary of Defense for Policy Colin Kale after Senator Jim Inhofe, 
I can never remember if it's Inhofe or Imhoff. Anyway, Inhofe, Republican of Oklahoma, pointed to what he believed were contradictory or at least confusing numbers that the administration has presented since the August 31st withdrawal. Quote, of the many confusing things about this whole thing is that we really don't know how many Americans are left in Afghanistan, Inhofe said. The administration number of U.S. citizens left in Afghanistan keeps changing. We all understand that. It's very confusing. Kale gave a thorough response detailing the numbers he had of how many Americans were in Afghanistan and had gotten out, eventually leading to the number of those who remain. Quote, in terms of how many American citizens we estimate are currently in Afghanistan, the State Department is in contract, contact with 196 American citizens who are ready to depart, and arrangements are being made for them to do so, either via air or by, by ground. And another 243 American citizens have been contacted and are not ready to depart, either because they want to stay in Afghanistan or they simply aren't ready. Now, <clears throat> so when you hear the State Department say, you know, less than 200, you know, I, you know, footnotes are important. Grant Newsom and I were talking about footnotes the other day. You, you make yourself look like a clown when you don't disclose the full truth. And you're working in the government. You're supposed to do that. Nobody's supposed to have to kick your ass to ask you the right question, you know, about our government. Maybe in a political campaign we understand that shit, but not in the day-to-day operations of the, of the American government. Um, a lot of these stories are about China. Yeah, from Reuters, China's President Xi calls for new progress in military equipment and weapons. How about that? Xi Jinping called for efforts to, quote, break new ground in military equipment and weapons and weapons development for the People's Liberation Army, China's Armed Forces, according to a report from the official Jihua Media on Tuesday. So, yeah, got that going for us. Interesting. Our guy Jing. Next, from Business Insider. China isn't letting a U.S. submarine incident in the South China Sea go. Hmm. Chinese officials keep accusing the U.S. of trying to cover up an incident involving a U.S. submarine. The Pentagon has denied allegations pointing to its public statements as evidence of transparency. The incident happened in the South China Sea where China and the U.S. are often at odds. Beijing keeps demanding answers about a mysterious U.S. submarine incident that happened in the South China Sea. Earlier this month, accusing the U.S. of being cagey and of trying to cover it up. The U.S. insists it is not the case. Chinese Foreign Ministry Foreign Affairs Spokesman Zhao Linjin said Tuesday that China has grave concerns and accused the U.S. of being irresponsible and cagey by not providing the details about the incident. He said the lack of details gives every reason to question the truth and the intention of the United States. Quote, what was the USS Connecticut up to doing so secretively in the South China Sea at that time? What did it collide with? Why did the collision happen? 
Was there a nuclear leak that creates nuclear contamination in a marine environment? Like the Chinese give a shit about that, right? Yeah, if I was the Chinese, I would not let that go either, just for the record. But what did happen? A U.S. Pacific fleet release five days after the collision occurred. The Navy said the submarine struck an object while submerged in international waters, writing that there was no life-threatening injuries, that the sub was in stable condition, and that the nuclear propulsion system was not damaged. <laughs> no, no further comment. Yeah, so what were they doing? And again, I told you the rumor. They hit something Chinese as they were tracking them. But just a rumor. Um, it's kind of an interesting story that, that broke overnight. FCC kicks Chinese Telecom Americas, China Telecom Americas, out of the United States, cite Chinese government control. China Telecom Americas ordered to stop providing service in the United States within 60 days. The Federal Communications Commission today, as in yesterday, voted to block China Telecom Americas from the U.S. market, saying, quote, U.S. subsidiary of a Chinese-owned state enterprise is subject to exploitation, influence, and control by the Chinese government. The telecom company is highly likely to be forced to comply with Chinese government requests without sufficient legal procedures subject to independent judicial oversight, the FCC said. The vote was 4-0, with both Democrats and both Republicans approving the order to revoke and terminate China Telecom's Section 214 authority to operate in the United States. How about that? That would be a firm grasp of the obvious by the FCC, right? Yeah, congratulations to them on, on grabbing it by the ears and getting it out of their ass. Who knew? Who knew? Um, <clears throat> we've all watched the supply problems, right, around the country. And so uh, I saw this headline. Yeah, I woke up, I don't know, at 3.30. I went to bed like, at, I was tired. I went to bed at 9.30, woke up at like 3.30. And so I'm laying in bed looking at my news feed. Headline, this is from Bloomberg. America's supply chain collides with California's nimbyism, right? NIMBY, not in my backyard, right? A re regulation at the Port of Long Beach has clogged national deliveries. It is emblematic of the state's impasse on housing and other development. Now, I would tell you that this doesn't make sense to me. Right? I'm going to share it with you, but it doesn't make sense to me, and, and I'll tell you why. It doesn't make sense to me because... We're seeing these port issues all around the country. Now, if they were only in Long Beach, then maybe this story explains it, but we're seeing them around the country. Here's the story. Last Thursday, Ryan Peterson, the chief executive of logistics company Flexport, rented a boat to get clo a close look at what was happening at the port of Long Beach in California. Friday... He took to Twitter to report that he'd learned about why two of the nation's largest ports, the Port of Los Angeles and the Port of Long Beach, have come to a virtual standstill. Quote, 
in a full three-hour loop through the port complex, passing every single terminal, we saw less than a dozen containers get unloaded. There were plenty of cranes, he observed, but nearly every spot holding containers was filled. With empties clogging the available space, new containers carrying goods from the sea or land had nowhere to go. The result was a supply supply chain logjam of epic scale. The ports shutting down is worse than Lehman Brothers failing, Peterson warned in a follow-up tweet. Both can lead to catastrophic failures of all counter parties depending on them. It turned out that the main problem wasn't an absolute space constraint, but a local zoning regulation. Long Beach prohibits companies from stacking offloaded containers more than too high. The law is not a safety regulation, but an aesthetic one. City officials decided that stacks of containers more than eight feet high were too ugly to tolerate. The situation exemplifies why the formerly can-do state of California has become such a difficult place to build anything, including an upwardly mobile life. So the article then goes on to detail, um, you know, this article gets written, the tweets get, get put out there, and then the city manager suspends that ordinance, right? that allows um, them to stack containers, I think, four or five high. So, um, but again, this it, this can't be the reason all over the country that just about every port is having a problem. So again, this issue continues to befuddle me. And, um, and I get it. We don't have enough drivers, evidently. But normally, that's a supply and demand issue that works itself out. We've got to raise wages at some point. I don't understand that. And 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 this thing gets to the point, as I've said, you've heard me say on this program before, but if I drove five miles from here and drive to the Pacific Coast Highway, it looks like there's an amphibious invasion off the coast of California. Ships stacked everywhere. Never seen it before in my life. So um, that's interesting. Next story that I saw that I thought was interesting. U.S. military exit from Syria, unlikely anytime soon, officials say. Speculation has been rife American forces would withdraw from Syria after the Afghanistan pullout in an effort to end the, quote, forever wars, unquote. Um, Now, I read this story because yesterday went through a story about a— a drone strike by Iranian-backed forces in the region. And um, the American response, right, to this deliberate, complex, complex attack on American forces sponsored by Iran. And again, if we just play stupid whack-a-mole shit with them, we play that game. It's like the Russians with this, you know, th- that company Wagner Security. That's all, that's the Russian military, right? And the, the little gray men and all that, that's that shit. And until you hold the, na- the host nation, the sponsoring nation accountable, then, then you're going to see Americans get killed 
And and the Iran and the nation of Iran is not going to pay a price. They're more than willing to have their surrogates pay the price. They're not willing to pay the price. Sink a few ships. And see what happens. Don't do that anymore, okay? We're going to hold you accountable. Not some shithead that you can replace in 10 seconds in the middle of the Syrian desert that we hit with a Hellfire missile. And then we announce, you know, to the world that, you know, we've retaliated for the deliberate attack on, you know, an American installation in Syria. Here's the article. The United States will not be withdrawing its roughly 900 troops from northeastern Syria anytime soon, despite mounting speculation it would. In recent weeks, Syria watchers have pondered whether Joe Biden's hallmark decision to end US, the United States' longest ever war in Afghanistan would impact Syria. Officially, the U.S. has 900 troops in the country. Officially. The mandate, the mission of those troops is to help Washington's local counterterrorism partner, the Kurdish YPG-led Syrian Democratic Force, ensure the enduring defeat of the armed group, ISIL-ISIS. You remember them, right? They took over Western Iraq. Now, some analysts contend that Biden's push to end the post-9-11 forever wars, bolstered by a seemingly strong desire among the American public to see the country disentangle itself from military engagements in the Middle East, could mean the withdrawal from Syria is once again on the foreign policy agenda. However, Syria is a different place. And this is a Biden administration official speaking on the condition of anonymity. Quote, people talk about how we're pursuing an end to endless wars as if we've got this strategy to totally abandon all of our commitments in the Middle East. This is frankly false and simplistic. Surprisingly, we know that Afghanistan and Syria are two different places, and that's why our policies were and are very different. A little bit of sarcasm in there, right? The size and nature of our objectives, the depth of our involvement, and the kind of environment we're operating in in Syria is just totally different. So, there you have it. United States and Syria. Biden administration on their J-O-B. Yeah. Next. U.S. legs China in hypersonic weapons by years, according to the CEO of Raytheon. Yeah, that doesn't make me happy. How did that even happen? I just reached my the maximum limit for articles in a month on Bloomberg. What is it, three? So I copy and paste it into a new browser. The U.S. government is years behind China in the pursuit of so-called hypersonic weapons that bob and weave through the atmosphere at more than five times the speed of sound, Raytheon Technology Corporation's chief executive officer said on Tuesday. While the Pentagon has a number of hypersonic weapons programs in development and the U.S. understands the technology, China has, quote, actually fielded hypersonic weapons, Raytheon CEO Gregory Hayes said in an interview with Bloomberg Television's Balance of Power with David Weston. We are at least several years behind. The emerging ultra-fast weapon systems have sparked concerns 
because of their potential to destabilize relations between the United States, China, and Russia. They may also become a front in the mounting competition between Beijing and Washington as the world's two largest economies clash over trade, technology, and humanitarian issues. Raytheon is developing a hypersonic cruise missile with the U.S. military. So, yeah, he might be protecting an investment by saying that. Yeah, you need to partner with us. Raytheon, keeping America safe. And, oh, by the way, so those are a few stories that I thought were interesting as I kind of cruised through the news today. Uh, top headline in Marine Corps Times uh, has not changed from yesterday. The... um. So uh, no news, no new news in the Marine Corps world. Um, and then uh, top five stories in early bird. Number one is <laughs> nearly 200 Americans and thousands. That's not even a right story, right? We know the number is higher than that. Uh, nearly 200 Americans and thousands of Afghans who seek visas remain in Afghanistan nearly two months after the U.S. troop pullout. Um, next headline, hostage family to Biden, bring our fellow Americans home. And so you have a series of uh, Americans who have people being held in prisons in Moscow and elsewhere saying, please help us. Um, next story. Texas slashes guard benefits while spending millions to expand the border mission. Kind of odd. The Texas National Guard is massively expanding its state active duty mission as the U.S. Mexico bore at the U.S. Mexican border, with thousands of troops already there and thousands more on the way via unit level involuntary mobilization. The Texas Military Department. Confirmed to Army Times, even as the border mission dubbed Operation Lone Star expands, Texas has slashed its tuition assistance budget by more than half to roughly $1.4 million to comply with a state-mandated budget reduction. The benefit cut, cut for soldiers comes after the Texas legislature approved a $300 million funding boost for the Texas Military Department's border mission amid a record high year for Border Patrol apprehensions. Some critics of the mission have argued that the activations are political are a political ploy by Governor Greg Abbott, who faces a primary challenge from a former state Republican Party chair, Alan West, a hardline conservative rival. West is a former United States Army officer who forced was forced to retire after he tortured a detainee while deployed to Iraq as a battalion commander in 2003. Regardless of the potential motivations, though, the National Guard exists to execute lawful orders given through legitimate authority, explained Lieutenant General John Jensen, director of the, the Army National Guard, at a press conference earlier this month. Quote, what may be described as a political decision can also be described as a security decision, depending on where you sit on the issue, Jensen said. So what we look at is whoever's making the decision, are they making the decision within their authority? Is it a legal order? If the answer to that is yes, then obviously we need to go ahead with the mission. So anyway, bad in the news today. Number four, the Marine Corps may soon allow sleeve tattoos, among other ink policy changes. 
If it's a slow news day, man, and you want to create some clickbait, just go to the tattoos. <laughs> That's right. If a leaked email is true, the Marine Corps may soon allow sleeve tattoos and unlimited number of tattoos for officers and allow future recruiters and drill instructors to sport visible ink. An email with some details of a potential new policy was posted to the unofficial Marine Corps Reddit page on Tuesday morning and since has been deleted. The oh, To the unofficial Marine Corps Reddit page. What is the unofficial Marine Corps Reddit page? What the hell is that? Many Marines have long waited a more relaxed tattoo policy, blah, 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 blah. In a phone conversation, a spokesman for the Marine Corps, right, a public affairs officer who's not going to tell you anything, quote, we are currently evaluating the tattoo policy and we will publish an update shortly. Stenger said the email on Reddit likely came from a Marine leader giving a heads up on possible changes coming to Marine Corps policy. He insisted that no decision on the tattoo policies is final yet. Gotcha. So, that in the news today. Um, Here's another story that actually I was thinking about yesterday. On-duty fatal accidents plummet across the Army, but off-duty accidents rise. Now, here's a question. Why did they fall? Are we not operating as much? Are we not in the field as much? Are we not doing it as much? Why are our accidents falling? Or are we just at the same rate? Are we doing, are we, are we better? Are we more focused? That would be my fondest hope. Yes. Good news story, right? And then off-duty accidents are rising. So again, got to take care of your own. Um, let's see. Overseas operations. U.S.-China sparring over Taiwan heats up anew. That's in the Associated Press. Next headline, uh, one we already talked about, U.S. military exit from Syria, unlikely anytime soon. Um, Next headline, this is in Breaking Defense. Drone attack in Syria may be a warning of things to come. Yeah, well, again, if you're judging by an American response, which none of us have seen yet, then why not? If you can get away with that shit, I sure as hell would. Yeah, they're not going to do anything. Terrorist group in Afghanistan could launch international strikes within six months, officials warned. So this is a story that made the rounds yesterday. And um, saying that ISIS-K, within a matter of six months, would be in a position to affect the United States. So... Keep an eye on that. Story, interesting headline, story out of the New York Times. Iran wanted the U.S. out of Afghanistan. It may be sorry their wish came true. Hmm. So who wrote this? By Farnaz Fazi. For 20 years, Iranian officials 
have said they wanted the U.S. military out of Afghanistan. Iran supplied Afghan insurgents with weapons to use against American soldiers. It sheltered al-Qaeda's top leaders in Tehran. It courted the Taliban with diplomatic visits covertly and then publicly. But when the United States finally left Afghanistan in August, the swift Taliban takeover caught Iran off guard. Suddenly, Iran, a Shiite Muslim theocracy, had a militant Sunni theocracy on its border that is widely seen as anti-Shiite. The upheaval has also sent a flood of Afghan refugees into Iran, has led to fears that Afghanistan will soon become an incubator for terrorism, and has trapped Iranian leaders in a diplomatic tangle in dealing with a Taliban government seen as both a potential enemy and as a potential partner. The episode has been turned into a classic lesson. Be careful what you wish for. So, um, you can find this on the New York Times website. I'll get to the end. Last couple paragraphs. Vali R. Nasser, a senior advisor to the Obama administration on Afghanistan and Pakistan, said Iran began to panic when the Trump administration started peace talks with the Taliban. Iranian officials criticized the Trump administration for not demanding enough political concessions from the Taliban in talks in Doha, Qatar, resulting in, quote, an American and Pashtun deal rather than one benefiting all Afghans. Now, that's probably valid criticism. Quote, Iranians are masters of leverage, Mr. Nasser said. Quote, they once, they knew once Doha was signed, there was no stopping the Taliban. The policy is right now to avoid the worst in Afghanistan and find what to pursue in the mess that America has left for them. So, yeah, not everything rosy in the world of the Iranians. Next headline from the Washington Post. In Taiwan war game, few good options for U.S. to deter China. So much... um, (laughs) No, I wonder, is Grant Newsham quoted in this one? Written by Dan Lamoth. And with President Biden's remarks that were walked back from the White House last week, um, it's interesting. It's interesting. So, all right, um, that's a quick not so quick look at the news that is a look at the news and uh coming up next is the one and only chris woodbridge so don't touch that dial here's woody joining me now is the editor and publisher of the marine corps gazette and the publisher of leatherneck leatherneck magazine and that is uh, colonel chris woodbridge united states marine corps infantryman uh, Woody, uh, welcome back to All Marine Radio. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Mac. Glad to do it. Your voice a little different. Can you explain to everybody what's going on with you? Are you okay? Just fighting through a little bit of a sore throat, that's all. Got just, it, uh, got it. Now, you've already had COVID, not, yes? Not from, not from screaming at people, not from uh, <laughs> not from uh, from cheering in the, in, the, in, the, in the cheap seats, nothing like that. Just uh, the normal crud of, uh, of changing seasons here in uh, Northern Virginia. Got it, got it, got it. Um, I, I want to. I've been in. The, well, first of all, I want to ask you about current events, and then I want to ask you about a little, a little dust up that's occurring in the uh, 
um, that's occurring in the in uh, in in the Gazette. Um, uh, your thoughts um, first on since the last time I talked to you, the Somerset investigation uh, came out, and and I'll give you uh, I'll give you two thoughts. Um, I think it's finding a fact one thirty seven one thirty eight says that this commanding officer of the USS Somerset did not know that he had the authority to hold those Amtraks um, on San Clemente Island. Stunning. And then the endorsement from 3rd Fleet Commander says that even though the naval officer in charge of the USS Somerset is the overall commanding officer of this movement, I find nothing here that that rises to the status where I would discipline formally somebody. I will take it, you know, I reserve the right to take administrative actions. To me, that was stunning. Um, one, did you have a, did you have a chance to, to read that investigation? Um, two, your thoughts on that. So I've read uh, uh, main major parts of it. I haven't read it cover to cover. Um, you sort of focus in on, uh, on some of the key findings of fact. I, that was uh, – uh, about as far as, uh, as I got to, but no, I, I agree with you. It does make you scratch your head. Um, and, uh, some of the discussion that we've actually had, uh, recently, uh, in the Gazette and, and out on the Gazette, uh, Gazette blog, it, it, it's this idea of where, what level, um, does accountability reside at, you know, how far down and how far up any given chain of command, um, does, uh, accountability and, and what we're really talking about is when we say accountability is in a lot of cases, it's culpability. Um, because, you know, invariably we have these discussions when, when something bad happens, uh, you know, we never have these, we never have these discussions when something good happens. Um, it's, uh, uh, it does make you scratch your head because again, I've, I've there, but for the grace I've, I've been, uh, on, Several MU deployments. I've worked with uh, with AAVs my entire career as a as a Seventh Marines and First Marines guy, and splashed and recovered tracks many times. And uh, it it does make you scratch your head that uh, the senior uh, leadership um, was unaware, didn't know where their uh, their authority really rested, and. And, and I guess, what, what are we trying to say there? That that allows or that's that's a rationale for um, someone to not make a decision or uh, just to sort of proceed business as usual, um, despite despite the facts um, that, uh, you know, you're, you're dealing with uh, um, issues of sea state uh, and you're also, you know, pushing into uh, – uh, operations, you know, outside safety parameters. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's pretty telling about where the, um, the level of accountability stops in some, in some cases. Now, you know, the Marine Corps took a, took a different view on that and, uh, and, and ran pretty high up. Um, but, um, and, and down for that matter, you know, uh, number, of leaders from staff NCO up to general officer have, have felt the impact of this. Um, but, but the Navy takes a different view, I think. Um, but Woody, they, it, it did, you, it did used to, you and I grew up in the culture of the one question court martial. 
were you the commanding officer of the USS well, fill in the blank, right? On this date. Yes, sir, I was. That's all I have. Thank you. Yeah. You're done. Yeah, no, it's it's not that uh, it's not that uh, culture anymore, I think. Um, I don't think that's a positive thing either because, um, you know, again, the the authority of command that a, uh, you know, particularly the captain of a, of a warship at sea exercises um, is uh, you know, probably probably one of the most powerful, uh, you know, levels of command in the, in all the armed forces. Right. Close to absolute. Close to absolute uh, power. Close absolutely. To absolute. And it, and it's meant to be that way. And historically that, that goes back centuries right. for very good reasons. Right. Um, but it, it's almost as if that's been, uh, that's been watered down to some, to some degree, um, and become a little more bureaucratic perhaps. Uh, I, I, I really don't know, but very, very confusing, very disappointing. It definitely makes you scratch your head and, and it, it, um, it, I mean, to some degree it, it, it sort of minimizes what happened, if you know what I mean. So, I know, absolutely. And, 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 and also stands in stark contrast with the way that Marine Corps commanders got treated. Exactly. So, you know, it's. It almost makes you wonder if you have, uh, uh, and and I know I think I know where you're uh, where you're going to go with this next. But you know if you have similar uh, similar climate, shall we say, and um, something else gets broken, uh, or something else uh, uh, is a casualty because of it. You know, aircraft on an aircraft carrier, fire on a on a on a CVBG um, or a CVG. Um, you know, major fires on, on other surface combatants, um, those sorts of failures, where's, where's that accountability? Uh, and so, yeah, we've, we've seen that now too, um, between, uh, destroyers running into each other, uh, and the fire on the, uh, on the Bonhomme Richard, uh, I think is, is indicated, indic- indicative of a, uh, just a breakdown in that, um, absolute command authority um or maybe it's a different interpretation of it um you know it's absolute it's absolute control absolute power when things go well um and then when things go badly uh it's um you know kind of a kind of a more legalistic approach of uh you know let's look for the mitigating circumstances let's let's be you know let's be realistic about this the days of the of the one question court martial that was very unrealistic. But you knew, you pays your money, it you takes your chances when you're the when you're the CEO. And uh, and Charlie Oscar's got everything on the line, um, so you have that sort of environment of command on board ships, um, and and again with with centuries of experience as to why it needs to be that way. Right. Um, so this I think definitely shows a uh, a change in that in that culture in that environment. Um, that that really couldn't be coming at a worse time. Uh, any other thoughts on on the Bonhomme Richard? I mean, the, to read the findings, um, honestly stunning. That uh, here you have an American warship in port going through a maintenance period, and as somebody who was part of a ship's company guarding uh, special weapons, although I can neither confirm nor deny that they were ever present on the USS Ranger. Um, that um, when you're going through undergoing maintenance periods, you have meetings every day, 
uh, with damage control people, the fire marshal, who's doing what, where the hot spots are going to be. And everybody knows that the greatest danger to the ship in port is a fire like that. And, uh, and, and we all know that relative to shipboard fires, there is the quick and the dead. Two hours after the fire is reported, the first water or agent goes on to the fire, and that is watered by the San Diego, San Diego Fire Department, uncoordinated with anybody. They just go on the ship and they begin to do it. Um, any thoughts on losing a two and a quarter billion dollar warship to the fact that we 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 couldn't fight a fire and it failed at every level? Well, and that's that's the statement. That is failure at at every level. Um, and and you're right that there's there's no way that that should happen. Um, the 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 systemic um, problem indicated by that, I think, uh, you know, when you when you've got a ship now going through a maintenance cycle, um, it almost to me it sort of echoes. Uh, in some ways, um, if you want to think about it this way, what what the Marine Corps went through with uh, 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 you know re, retaking the barracks back in the mid uh, mid mid two thousands, um, you know the idea that okay we're not really in charge over there um, because you know that's that's another area we're not really in charge on board that vessel while it's going through maintenance because we've got all these contractors and, and assorted other tech reps and folks who've got to, got to come and go and they're doing all that work on the vessel. And, you know, yeah, there's still some crew that are, uh, that are residing or living on the vessel, but they don't do it 24 seven. They're, you know, they're staying in barracks or out in town as well. Cause it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, um, more cost effective and easier for them. And, and so, yeah, we've got some watch standers, but it's really, you know, they're just they're just there to, you know, stand duty essentially, and you know, the real work is being done by uh, external uh, uh, contracts and and other folks who who don't don't live on the ship and don't, uh, you know, certainly wouldn't take it to sea. Um, so, you know, it's this out of sight, out of mind uh, attitude, I think, that um, you know pervades an awful lot of, uh, of examples across the services, you know, just, um, you know, again, falling into complacency, uh, and business as usual. And that never leads to a good place. Uh, it never does. If there isn't command attention, uh, at, at a lot of levels from, from the, uh, you know, the, what I would call the, the staff NCO, uh, chief petty officer level, all the way up to the, you know, to the commissioned officers who's, you know, whose responsibility the ship is when, when anything becomes business as usual, um, you know, it's not going to end in a good place when complacency sets in and doesn't matter what uh, type of organization it is, uh, what level of command, it's just never going to go to a good place. Um, and it takes a lot of effort to stop that. Um, you know, which when a, when a, a, a surface vessel is going through a maintenance cycle, Oh, wait a minute. Do we really need to expend that much effort on these, uh, you know, these fundamentals, these blocking and tackling sort of, you know, leadership and management things? Um, because we know we're not going to see for quite some time. So, yeah, it's just easy to get complacent uh, and easy to, to not take the extra effort. 
It's uh, really interesting as I as I kind of travel around and talk to, um, you know, I talk to a lot of staff and COs and and whatnot, and um, you mentioned their role in in all of this, and in particular, like the daily discipline, and and you know, I, I had a sergeant major said, you know, Mac, we are the mothers of the Marine Corps. We get them dressed, we get them there on time, we make sure they're where they're supposed to be, right? We listen to their problems, and uh, and I said, well. Yeah, but the mothers have all backed away, and this is part of this, you know, that the mothers have decided that they can't withstand an allegation, and there's things like the pack order and, and whatnot that have been written, that if somebody allegates against me because I stepped into the gray area, the area of leadership that our staff and COs used to dominate, right, they've now pulled, as as a group, they pulled out of there because they don't know that they can survive in there anymore because, right, the officers won't support them in there. That, you know, whether it's your abusive language or I didn't like the way he said that to me, why am I going to risk my retirement, right, that I've worked really hard and I can see on the horizon for some jackass? Bottom line, I'm not going to anymore. And so so it's it, that environment creates an even more challenging, right, where you have uh, command climate surveys. Uh, back when Woody and I were, in our heyday as, as, as Marine officers, the command climate survey was a precursor to somebody being relieved. They knew the results of it. But you were given wide latitude as a commander to deliver what you were supposed to deliver. Now, those things are done as a matter of course. And if those numbers aren't trending in the right direction, then, you know, would you be relieved? Well, it's certainly something people pay attention to. So the whole leadership climate is vastly different. And so I, I think, you know, never bring up a problem without recommending a solution. How does it get solved, Woody? Because I don't see anything short of, an, I mean, how many more catastrophes do we have to have in order to create the circumstances where somebody says, hey, this starts with blocking and tackling, okay? So we as a force have to get back to basic stuff, okay? And one of the things I'm going to recommend is, all cell phones stay in your car. I had somebody who's a Teamster call, call me and say, after the Bonhomme Richard fire, he said, you know, Mac, you know what they were doing? I'll guarantee you. While that fire was burning and they couldn't be bothered to run down there, they're on their cell phones. They're playing games, they're watching movies, they're texting, emailing. Mm -hmm. He said, in a Teamster shop, right, if you have your cell phone on you, Right, if you're on your cell phone, you'd be fired right on the spot. I said, "Whoa, I didn't know that." Look, it's, uh, like all of our accidents are the result of those stupid ass cell phones. And I thought, you know, maybe, and I think this is going to come to the Marine Corps and the military at some point. When you get out of your car, your cell phone stays in that car. You come to work, you're all in to work, right? And it could because we just can't have it any other way. So I, I don't know. Do you have an idea? How does it how does it change? And that's just one example. But I, I yeah, think no, I, I think the I environment's very challenging. Yeah, I don't I don't disagree with that example. Um, but part of the issue is uh, they're going to get that phone back at some point. And right. in some instances, it's it's what they do on that phone um, that uh, creates this environment of uh, second guessing uh, amongst the leadership, especially that uh, what I'll call the you know the that's the, the shop steward gray area level of leadership where NCOs and staff NCOs uh, in the Marine Corps have in the past been the strongest uh, 
you know, part part of the leadership chain, the leadership environment, you know, where where the actual eyeball leadership occurs um, when they're second guessing their behavior. um, In in many cases, it's because of the potential uh, impact of what any given Marine uh, can do out there in the information environment. Um, And so, you know, addressing that and and also addressing it at a a higher leadership level of, um, you know, we're. Excuse me. We're here to uh, screen, guard, and cover that uh, that eyeball leadership level. We're here to provide the top cover. Um, but you know, you know as well as I do that 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 just shifts the target then, and so then the officer becomes the uh, 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 the target, if you will, of of uh, uh, these these online behaviors that can, you know, really it, it's a. Uh, you know, back when you and I were were around, it was it was the congruent that uh, that caused all the problems. It was it was actual you know physical letter correspondence between uh, you know someone and their elected representative that resulted in these uh, these you know sort of command investigations done at light speed to to answer the mail on a congruent. Well, those are those are now beyond that speed because uh, credence is given to some things on social media. Um, that, that fall into that category. And it's, uh, you know, again, I call it an environment of second guessing and and walking on eggshells. And so how do we, how do we change that? Um, and I, honestly, I don't know that you can, because whether you're, uh, you know, whether you're working in a classified space and you have to lock your, uh, digital devices up before you go in, um, and there's, there's a lot of places in the Marine Corps where that's the case, um, or you have some local policy, uh, that no, you can't have these with you. Um, eventually, eventually Marines get those things back and it's what they do out there with them and the reaction to it amongst that, you know, up and down that chain of command, uh, which I think is where things really get off the rails. And, you know, I don't disagree with you, Woody. I, there, I don't, what can you do about that? I don't think a whole lot, right? But the only thing I can do is say, okay, while you're at work, though, right? Yeah. I, we need, you, we need you to be all in at work. Too. All I'm going to say is wait for that to be challenged, too. Right. But you don't understand I need to have this phone with me because, um, you know, I've got, a, I've got a sick family member because I've got – kids that I'm responsible for and I don't know what's going to happen if their school calls the I'm I'm the one you know I've seen it happen right. so you make you make a policy with all the well you know good intentions in the world um, and then you get uh, uh, excoriated you get called on the carpet because you deprived a marine of that connectivity right. that they need for x y or z right. and uh, yeah it's I, I think at some point there has to be a, a level of leadership that just sort of says, yeah, call it the so what level, right. you know, so um, whether it be on social media or, or, you know, out on somebody's blog, a Marine posts something and is critical of leadership and it, and it create it, it takes on a life of its own as it gets shared around the internet. There sort of has to be a grown up level of leadership that just says, oh, well, you know, Lance Corporal X has a real problem with this, with this issue. Um, so what? And if there's a so what there, then that level of leadership finds it. And there's either grounds for something more serious or not. Um, and if not, um, then there ought to be some consequences for the Marine involved. Right. You know, 
Um, yeah, I'll tell you so, what though. That's that would be. I think that'd be welcomed by a lot of people. But it seems like we're so we're so far away from that. And again, um, anytime you see somebody go testify in front of Congress, um, the last thing you hear them talk about is operational excellence. Right? Exactly. It's exactly. all these it's all these other things that that we're doing, and operational excellence. And and again and again, contrast that with. Eight Marines and a sailor drowned a year ago. Contrast that with um, a 2.25, if you include the upgrade, billion-dollar warship burns out of incompetence, and it burns nine years after a submarine burned in much the same manner. So evidently, we didn't embrace those lessons, right? We didn't, we didn't live those lessons. And how many more ships have to burn up before we do? How much more of this do we have to see? But I don't know. And then I see the endorsements of the of the um, the, the head of the head of the Third Fleet, who absolves the CEO of the Somerset set of, of of essentially not knowing his job, and uh, and so I don't it, I don't know. It, it's very concerning in terms of this. Um, I don't want to say this race to the bottom, but it, it's like everything else is important except operational excellence. But let me change the let me change the subject. You um, you wrote an editorial that appears in the October edition of the Gazette, and the title is "Focusing on Leadership." It starts like this: I would be remiss if I did not open this month's editorial by recognizing the loss of eleven Marines, one Navy corpsman. One Army Special Forces soldier on 26 August outside the Kabul airport. Um, talk about talk about what you wrote, and talk about what you're trying to emphasize or uh, evoke from the people that that read it. So there's two uh, two points there uh, I think are are critical, and um, you know point number one is uh, that that uh, attack. Um, and the results, the Marines killed, but also those wounded and the and the Afghans killed and wounded. Um, you know, that was that was the Parthian shot of uh, 20 plus years of operations uh, in Afghanistan on top of a prior 20 plus years of war since 1979 um, that that really just highlights a um, um very troubling, very frustrating uh, uh, period for certainly everybody who uh, was deployed there and fought there, but really, I think for for everyone, for the American people. Um, you know, we, we invariably folks question uh, was this was this worth it? Um, and the commandant and the sergeant major did a did a very credible job in their letter uh, of 18 August, which I also quote, um, trying to trying to tie that up and. And focus on the Marines um, who did serve and who did sacrifice, um, letting them know that they did, in fact, make a difference. They accomplished their mission. Um, I also point out that, you know, this is not this is far from the first time something like this, uh, this level has happened. And so, you know, this is where I believe the strength in the uh, in the veteran community uh, can can really help each other um, not to not to find somebody's shoulder to cry on or a, uh, you know, a like-minded uh, individual to, to make an echo chamber with and just, uh, just commiserate about, uh, about things that are, that are really kind of outside your control, but to gain some perspective 
um, particularly between the um, the Vietnam veterans uh, who served in in that conflict. Not not uh, 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 to you know to exclude anybody else, but uh, certainly certainly the uh, the echoes there and the um, the perspective of some of those uh, older veterans. And there are over two million about 2.1 million Marine veterans uh, in the country uh, across various you know, periods of service, various wars and conflicts, um, coming together to gain perspective and to find other points of view, um, I think is, is important at this point because it is kind of easy to, uh, to go internal and, uh, and kind of get into a, uh, you know, both a, both a woe is me sort of depression attitude and also a frustrated, you know, fist shaking anger attitude, uh, about, uh, the, the failings of strategic direction and strategic leadership, uh, not just in the department, but really at, at the national level. Um, I think, I think if for, you know, for anyone who, who questions the service and sacrifice of, of those who've, uh, uh, you know, been involved, uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq, and, and anywhere else, um, you know, you really have to start thinking about, well, what was our, what was our national interest going into this? And what was our, what was our ultimate purpose in being there? Um, and how did that change over time and why? Uh, and so what, what you start to, uh, to see, and I'll kind of paraphrase a, uh, a Marine a Vietnam veteran friend of mine is in, in, you know, in the, in the late sixties and early seventies, uh, people didn't like the music and they blamed the musicians. And that resulted in guys coming home from, from Vietnam and getting spat on and, you know, couldn't wear their uniforms out and that sort of environment. Well, the thing that changed over the, you know, the, the intervening period is uh, now people don't necessarily like the music and they're trying to blame the person who wrote the music or the conductor. Um, and so uh, that's, that's, a little more appropriate, I think, given the nature of the all-volunteer force, um, but it still isn't going to solve the real problem, which I think is, what do we do uh, as a as a nation? First of all, to um, determine when our national interests demand the use of, of military force, require the use of military force, um, and uh, and to to employ uh, that that yardstick. Of, uh, of what the actual strategic outcome is supposed to be. And then what do we do to develop the, the, the military and, and defense civilian professionals who can apply operational art to look at how uh, uh, the application of military force, tactical and operational action, actually can accomplish that strategic goal. Um, those are the failures, I think, that really built up over time and resulted in the situation that we're in now. And so the conversation, I think, should be, what do we do to improve those capabilities? Um, and how do we implement that as a, as a service within the Marine Corps? So again, speaking very, uh, very narrowly about our, our, uh, our, our, you know, our sphere of influence, our service. Got it. Um, let me ask you a broader question, as long as you brought it up. Um, we were raised in this in the shadow of Vietnam. We had it stuffed down our throat for our entire careers uh, by people who were uh, professionally scarred by that experience, uh, and quite rightly so. Um, yet um, we now have something 
uh, those of us who were there, uh, we now have something in common with Vietnam veterans that we never really wanted to have in common with them. And that is we fought in a war that, um, where the United States failed to achieve its strategic goals. And, uh, and we limp out of Afghanistan. Um, we do this in the aftermath of Vietnam. We do this after watching the Russians go there and fail. Um, uh, how's that, ha- you have any, how's that happen, Woody? Um, how do we get involved in a long war that we don't seem to be able to solve with no way out? Um, and essentially in many, many ways reenact Vietnam with, with, with Vietnam. And, and you can forgive Vietnam because it had never happened in American history. Well, I mean, the guys who, who led us into Iraq and Afghanistan were Vietnam veterans. General Franks, right? Uh, General Myers, both in Vietnam. Franks as a artillery officer and Myers as a, as a uh, I don't know if he was an attack pilot or a fighter pilot flying out of Thailand. And yet we don't have phase four figured out for either either place. And so it goes. Um, um, how's that happen? That's a pretty big question, yeah, I, but I'll, I'll, my, I'll, give my, you, I'll give you at least 30 seconds to answer it. Yeah. And uh, I'll do my best here as we uh, as we kind of come down to time. Um, So uh, my opinions at the at the national policy level, the national strategic policy level, um, in other words, the decision, the decision to uh, uh, take military action, um, we're uh, we've gone into an environment of um, what I'm going to call, and it doesn't. This is not a um, this is not a, a partisan political issue, because this uh, philosophy, if you will, extends across both parties and the political spectrum within our own country today. And I'm going to call it. I'll, I'll use the term uh, uh, progressive, but it's 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 the same attitude amongst the uh, the so-called neoconservative Republicans. It's the same attitude across uh, uh, progressive uh, liberal Democrats. It's the idea that we can do this better. Nobody who came before us is, knows as much as we do, has the capabilities that we do. And, and so this environment of um, extraordinary intellectual arrogance um, leads people to believe that they can, you know, they will succeed where history shows you Others, as good as you, if not better, have failed, even when they employed uh, far greater resources. Um, and so I, um, I really think at the national policy level, that the, 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 the spread of that sort of philosophy is the root cause of this. Because once you go down that road, then, then you know, it's okay not to have a clear strategic goal in mind. Um, and there's really no way uh, for, again, the military planners uh, at the department, at the theater, at the service levels to make any number of really good, smart operational and tactical decisions to make up for a bad strategic uh, 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 plan uh, or a bad national strategy, flawed national strategy at the top level. Um, and so... Uh, if we want to, again, recommend a solution to that, how do we develop, um, let's call them strategic planners, strategic leaders, strategic thinkers 
Um, not not just in the military. We've we've we may have some some good answers to that in the military. But how do we do that where the power actually rests um, uh, within the department and within the appointed and elected political leadership? That's where things, uh, uh, I think, really, really kind of come apart. All right. I want you to uh, I want you to tease what's in this month's edition. And then I want to ask you about uh, the Van Riper Lind um, mm. um, feud that that uh, well. I'll call it discourse that's going on um, that uh, in your in your publication, and then I'll have you back on in, in a week or so, and and we'll talk about the rest of the magazine. But uh, what's the theme of October's Gazette? So October October is a leadership themed uh, magazine. The the bulk of the articles um, talk about uh, leadership at a variety of levels, both at the you know kind of the fighting hole deck plate level. Up to, and I must, uh, I must, uh, you know, given given what we were just talking about, I've got to commend one of the cover articles, which is entitled uh, "The Principles of Bureaucratic Leadership" by Major Leo Spader, um, frequent contributor, frequent author to the Gazette, and um, that's a lot of what he's talking about there. He's talking about the most, um, you know, un unsexy, uninspiring environment of leadership. Um, which is at the bureaucratic levels within the Department of Defense and within uh, uh, the the government writ large, the executive branch and the legislature writ large, and how military leaders uh, need to uh, have some some uh, the same type of uh, touchstone leadership principles specific to that environment that they do to the the tactical and, and operational levels. So I, uh, I strongly strongly recommend that. Um, and then through the rest of the magazine, there are a number of other areas where we, we talk about leadership in strategy and policy. Um, and, uh, and we talk about, uh, the, the structure of the future force in, in force design and, and innovation and really looking at, um, some of the impacts of this, uh, this, you know, war among the people that we've been involved in for over 20 years as the service pivots towards, uh, you know, a more traditional, uh, a great power con- uh, competition and uh, and more uh, conventional war environment. Um, where do the lessons about civil military operations and and uh, counterinsurgency and war among the people still have application in that in that new environment that that environment that we pivot to? Uh, so I, I recommend those as well. Um, and then uh, also this month a continuation from September. Uh, where we had our uh, our initial uh, focus area on uh, on resilience and suicide prevention, there are there are four additional articles in October in that subject area as well. Um, all right, a final uh, question, kind of a tease. Um, in uh, in the October edition, uh, there's a letter. The, the first letter to the editor is response to Olympus. Um, the second letter. Uh, is uh, is is entitled Bill Lind colon enough is enough, and it references uh, Bill Lind, who most Marine officers and and leaders in the Marine Corps will will know from his history associated with maneuver warfare. In his letter Groundhog Day in the Marine Corps, Marine Corps Gazette, August of 2021, <laughs> um, that is uh, uh, General Paul K. Van Riper, one of the great intellects of the Marine Corps, and uh, and Colonel James K. Van Riper. Now, is that son or brother, James K.? Uh, twin, twin brothers. 
twin brother. Got it. He also had a son that was in the Marine Corps that I know I met. I didn't yes. know. Steve Steve uh, Van Riper. Steve Van uh, Riper. Got it. Yeah. Um, um, so what? You, yeah. What what's got, that's what you got there is uh, is in my opinion exactly. Uh, the kind of give and take uh, or artillery duel that the uh, that the Gazette was uh, originally designed for and envisioned to be as a as a platform for professional debate and discourse, and um, it's interesting that uh, this this uh, uh, iteration of the debate on uh, maneuver warfare um, is is really being sustained by some of the uh, the uh, the minds that were closest to it. Uh, back in the uh, 70s, 80s, and, and early 90s, when the Marine Corps first um, adopted maneuver warfare as a warfighting philosophy, um, wrote FMFM uh, one now MCDP one warfighting, and and uh, implemented uh, warfighting as the uh, the drumbeat behind training, behind education behind uh, uh, the way we, we organize units tactically and most importantly, the way we uh, train those units uh, for, for you know, a decade or more. Uh, that, was, that was part of the fabric of the Marine Corps. And so with um, the series of articles called the Maneuverist Papers, um, you've got a, a number of folks uh, writing under the pseudonym Marinus um, really telling the rest of the story about about how that maneuver warfare philosophy was was developed, what its bases were, where where it uh, it came from, and how it was uh, implemented and uh, and developed in the Marine Corps context. Um, and not surprisingly, Mr. Lind, who was closely involved in that, has has uh, come back in to comment on it in in another line of attack, another area, and that is. Uh, really being fairly critical of the Marine Corps for not fully institutionalizing or embracing uh, maneuver warfare as a as a philosophy, um, and then also uh, essentially laying out his view of uh, what what he refers to as fourth generation warfare um, as as a part of or a a, a, a next level of that philosophy. Um, not in agreement with uh, either Lieutenant General Van Riper or uh, or Colonel Van Riper, and so they responded in kind to uh, uh, to uh, uh, you know Bill's uh, thoughts in that area. That give and take uh, is exactly what uh, I look for as uh, as the editor and publisher, and I can I can tease folks and tell them that there's there's more coming. There's another uh, another, salvo, <laughs> another salvo in that artillery duel. Uh, That'll uh, actually be coming out in the uh, in the December Gazette. Well, you know what? And again, I think I just want to congratulate you. This is the kind of stuff that's that I, I would I would agree with you. This is what the Marine Corps Gazette exists to do because it is a great example for young leaders to show that hey, you can get it on in public. You know, there's a way to do that, and there's a way to you know air your air your opinion. And you should, yes. you're a Marine officer. You're responsible for people's lives and deaths. You should not be afraid to do that. But there is a certain way to do it. Uh, we all know that Mr. Lynn struggles with that. But because he never really served in uniform, he didn't. He doesn't really have that skill set. Nonetheless, uh, this is this was typical late '80s, early '90s. Absolutely. Uh, as as the attritionists of the Marine Corps got it on with the maneuverists in 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 our club systems, in the pages of the Gazette. And in arguments all over the Marine Corps, and I just want to applaud you for it. I and again, these guys go back. 
Um, I was telling Woody before he came on I, in in the in the PME that's on the All Marine Radio YouTube page um, that I've had for years because I made a copy of it. General Zinni came back and did his presentation that he called Combat Concepts, and it was one of the greatest PME. It is the best PME I've ever seen in my life. Changed my life. Um, and, and a big part of that is General Zinni himself, right? He, when he stands up and he becomes the evangelist, um, I'm not sure there's a better person doing it. Uh, off to the right of the room, um, in the dining facility of Haywood Hall, what was that called? What did you remember? Oh, gosh. Um, that was the um, that was the Hawk, the Hawkins room. No, that's the bar. What was the dining facility? It had a name. Anyway. Oh, gosh, I can't remember. Yeah, neither can I. But anyway, sitting off to the right, side by side, General P.K. Van Riper himself and Bill Lynn right next to each other. And Zinni's up on stage, and he's making fun of both of them, right? And it was hilarious. At one point, he looks at General Van Riper, and he says, you know, we had this, uh, we had Warrior Night at 9th Marine Regiment. I had one guy show up. Uh, no, he said, General Van Riper, uh, or Colonel Ripley, or Colonel Van Riper, Colonel Ripley, and uh, the other one escapes me, Colonel Fike. And then General's, Colonel Zinni stops and says this. They called one the surfer, one the philosopher, and one the Prussian. And he looks over at General Van Riper and he says, don't watch your board, General. Right? <laughs> yeah. that, the whole room falls out. And then he gives it to Lynn at times. He goes, yeah, this whole concept of maneuver warfare, right? This finger-licking, spicking thing, whatever the hell it is, right? And everybody starts laughing and looks over at Lynn, and Lynn kind of, like, bristles and whatever. But it was this, there was this jocularity, this, there was these confrontation. And sitting about half a dozen seats in front of me to my left was John Boyd, who stands up and, and takes Zinni to task about a very nuanced I think they were talking about culminating points. And it was, and I mean, but that was the vibrant intellectual environment that I think helped pr push that discussion that General Gray, you know, got going. And so I, I just, I think it's a great example and a great service what you're doing for a lot of people that were not around during that to show that this is one of your responsibilities to do to evolve the thinking, the approach, and the implementation of these concepts that are so important that people are going to bet your li their lives on in the future. So anyway, I appreciate you, what you do, Woody. I appreciate you doing this with a sore throat and uh, thank you very much. Mac. Thanks. I couldn't agree more. The, uh, uh, I was, I was lucky enough to be a second Lieutenant in, uh, in ninth Marines, uh, UDP to Okinawa and, uh, and got to sat, sit through a couple of different versions of that presentation at the, at the camp Hanson O club with, uh, with Colonel Zinni. Uh, and the other thing, the only comment I'd make is it, it also points to a, um, a collegial and, and, uh, really it's sort of a comfortable environment, um, amongst, uh, you know, a group of leaders, uh, who've served together since they were very, very junior officers and right. fought together, uh, in Vietnam. And, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful in some ways that, um, we're, we're still, uh, able to have that sort of environment uh, again with a, a close cadre of leaders um, who've uh, who've been together in the in the best of times and the worst of times. And well, and I would just say this: I don't think we have enough Zinnies, Van Rypers that will stand up 
vehemently disagree in public and not take it personal. You know, I mean, that is a, even when they were we were doing it. That was a relatively unique skill set, and I think more and more leaders, officer and enlisted, need to model that and not be afraid to disagree. Let me tell you where I disagree with Woody, okay? And I understand his point here, but I would I would look at it like this, right? And we disagree on that because we've done this before, right? And you know that example of of evolving the product and and that kind of intellectual discourse, that public respect for ideas, even though you can flip somebody some shit and have a little fun with it um, in public, right? We're expected to do that. I mean, we're not that evolved as human beings. And um, so, um, no, I think, it's, I think it's absolutely fantastic. Well done. I appreciate it, Mac. That's, uh, that's exactly what we're trying to get after. All right. Well, look, I hope you feel better, and I'll give you a call in a couple of weeks, and we can drill into the articles uh, in the October version of the Gazette. Thanks, Woody. Awesome. Thanks very much. All right. Out here. See you. That is the one and only Chris Woodbridge. And uh, I will hang. I don't know if I can hang the articles. Let's see. The Gazette is behind a paywall. And I will put the link to Bill Lynn's uh, article uh, that he's written. So that'll be in this post. That'll do it on a Wednesday. My thanks to Chris Woodbridge for sucking it up and coming on with a bad throat. And uh, we'll have him on in a couple weeks and and get some more thoughts um, about this month's Gazette and specific things that he would tell you to read. So um, thanks for listening here on a Wednesday. I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio. As I always say, um, if I can help you, if I can help you help somebody, just stick your hand out. I'd be more than happy to, right? All the contact information comes to me. Um, a lot of people out there are hurting. Um, you can make a difference if you listen to the show. I know you can. So don't be afraid to do that. On that note, it's hump day. I'm out. <laughs>